Welcome to Breakthrough, a podcast series where we meet the entrepreneurs and innovators behind now famous companies like Deliveroo, Farfetch, Mumsnet, and Bulb to reveal the stories behind their industry transforming businesses. Brought to you by Second Home, Index Ventures, and Sifted, these talks were recorded at Second Home Clerkenwell Green as part of our Breakthrough Fortnight in London. In this podcast, Deliveroo founder Will Shu lifts the lid on growing a billion-dollar business with Martin Mignot, partner at Index Ventures who led the company's 2.75 million investment in 2014. The company has since gone on to raise $1.5 billion. Will, last, uh, last month you announced a big, uh, big funding round. Um, 500 million dollars from from Amazon. Why why pick them as a as a partner? It's not your not your typical investor. Yeah, no, um, they they're you know not really a financial investor, more of a strategic investor. And I think for us, it was obviously nice to get you know a lot of capital in the business. Um, but I think more importantly for for me and the company, they've been a real role model for for us. You know, I've been an Amazon customer since 2001. And I think about it as a, it's a really long-term relationship and that's how they think about customers. And, you know, we aspire to that level of relationship with our riders, with our restaurants and with our end customers. And so I hope there's a lot we can learn from them um, and really, you know, just really, really excited about the partnership. So what are you going to do with so much money? I mean, how do you spend $500 million dollars? It's actually 600. Um, <laughs> exactly. And uh, that's easy. You no, know, it's a really good question. And I think, really, what I think what we're focused on um, is obviously hiring the leading you know, engineering tech team in London. That's obviously a big focus of ours. We've managed to hire some really great people from all over the world and we'll continue to do that. Um, we want to go deeper into the markets that we currently operate in. You know, give you an example in the UK, we cover 25% of the population. Where you know a just eat is at you know ninety five percent right so a really big difference, um, and I think there's some other expansion opportunities that are interesting as well. And then I'd say we are the leader in the world in building um, delivery only kitchens. We call them additions. That is something that we view as a long term uh, benefit for restaurants and customers, and so we want to extend that. And you know, there's just a whole host of other things. And as we were talking about earlier, it's kind of like, wow, we raised a lot of money and a lot more than I would have thought, but it's also a much yeah. bigger space than I was. I, I was actually rereading the, the, the deck that you presented to us in December, 2013. And nowhere did I see any mention of a billion and a half having to be raised to get there. So what, 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 what happened? Would, first you have of all, would you have done it again, knowing how much, you know, well, oh, first, first of all, I, 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 you brought it up. We've been working together for five and a half years now, yeah. which is actually really crazy to think about it. And uh, it's been it's been a lot of fun. You, you haven't aged, or I think I look great personally. <laughs> um, but you know, no one. Martin has the nicest hair in all of VC, as you can tell. Um, he actually does. Yeah. So um, no, but I think look, it, it is one of those things where it's certainly I did not anticipate the amount of capital that went into the space, nor did I anticipate the size of, of the market itself, right? Um, it started as a, hey, people in you know central London want 
better food delivered quickly to this is a complete lifestyle shift for many people. And it's a huge mainstream product. And I think the enterprise value you create in any given country is massive, let alone kind of being in a lot of different countries. So that is why obviously you see a lot of you know capital in this space for sure. And why, why did you start going back to the, the origin of, of Deliveroo? Why did you start in, in the first place? I mean, did you always know you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Were you kind of an entrepreneur looking for a project? Or do you come from an entrepreneurial family? No, not neither. So, I mean, look, the, I think there's probably two reasons why you should start a business. One is you feel personally passionate about a particular thing. And although I guess now that I think about it, it's kind of weird to say I'm really passionate about food delivery, but I am. Um, and, and I'll tell you about why that's the case um, you know, in, in a second. The second one is if you work in an industry and you understand there's some inefficiencies and you understand that something can be done a lot better, then that makes sense. I personally do not think it's wise to start a business just for the sake of starting a business because I think it's just too hard. Um, but to why I started Deliveroo, so the story is uh, my first job um, out of college, um, I worked in New York as an investment banking analyst and I ate every meal delivered. Uh, it was one of those jobs where I had to work 100 hours a week. And then over time, um, it became part of my personal life as well. And I worked for this company and they transferred me over to London in 04. And when I looked for food delivery options in 04, I just didn't find any, right? And so my first day at the job in Canary Wharf, we were eating um, these Tesco microwave meals, which, you know, actually are okay, but but I wanted something better. And so that's when I first thought of the idea. And I, I had like one idea, right? I didn't have like a hundred. And this eventually pursued it. Uh, at some point. And, and the, the, the decision of, of, of quitting your job, I mean, you had a, you know, you were very successful in, in a hedge fund, pretty, cu- you know, cushy job. The risk, you know, how did you, how do you think about the risk reward of, of, of getting started and jump, jumping on? Yeah. So I was, um, uh, I guess when I started the business, I had just graduated business school and I had a few different opportunities to go back into finance. Um, I just didn't love finance. I thought, certain aspects. I enjoyed the intellectual challenge, but ultimately, you know, I wanted to do something that was more tangible, less abstract, and just, I guess, I guess you know, started the business with Greg and got pretty lucky. So, yeah. When did, at what point did you know that I was working and I was going to get big? I mean, any milestone or any particular kind of anecdote? Um, I, I think that I just had this like really deep belief that people in central London wanted this product. And I wasn't like hyper focused on milestones. I was just like, it's going to work. And it was really when, so when the business first started, I used to just ask my friends to order all the time. Right. Cause that's what you do. You're like, Hey, and I, I would bug them all the time. Like, Hey, you got to order. And you would deliver the food yourself. And I would deliver the, and the reason they would order is cause they thought it was really funny that I would deliver the food. <laughs> Right. And they just thought it was like hilarious. And, and then I realized like they actually kept ordering even after I stopped. Well, or I wouldn't deliver the food every time. Right. And so I think that was when I was like, okay, like I don't need to convince my friends about this. Then really we have some product market fit. Right. And then I think we got really excited when we got outside of central London and we're in zone three and four and the customer engagement was really similar to that of central London. So that was really, I think, um, a pretty good sign. Yeah. And, and in the early days, so you mentioned that, that 
you did it with your your best friend. I mean, you know, yeah. or one of your best friends, yeah. your childhood friend, Greg, who 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 didn't uh, continue for very long actually with, with the business. I mean, he you know he he left quite quite early after about you know, two or three years. Yeah. Uh, he was a CTO, um, but he stayed in Chicago and, and never really kind of went on with the business. How did you deal with? You know, with that, obviously, you know, breaking up with a co-founder is not, is not an easy thing, especially if you had been childhood friend before. How did you manage that situation? Yeah, I mean, um, so we grew up we grew up in New Haven, Connecticut together. Uh, it's a small city in the U.S., and we've been friends since we're like 12. And, you know, he was the best kind of co-founder you could have because he, he's technical and, and I'm not. And he really... Um, he, his skills were really wide-ranging. He knew how to build an iOS app. He knew how to... You, you know, um, build a website. He knew how to build our first algorithm. Although design was not one of his, his strong. No, points, so. <laughs> no, no. Design was not his um, strength. <laughs> if but, anyone had used as used deliver at uh, uh, around 2013, 2014, they will know what I what I'm yeah, talking I mean, about. Yeah, I mean, basically, you had to zoom into. So we we didn't have a, um, a mobile optimized uh, website or an app. So basically, you had to zoom in to like check out like to the checkout button. Um, and it was just crazy. Oh, that I was actually one of the main reasons why we invested in the first place. Like if people still order on that yeah. fucking shitty website, yeah, yeah, that yeah. thing is going to be huge. That's good. No, no, I think you're right because, you know, we talk a lot about delivery, about what customers care about and, you know, obviously price selection service yeah. and product being kind of part of service. But really it's like, if you get great food to people quickly and I mean, it's sort of table stakes now, but in the beginning we had this, huge differentiation from the incumbent, right? And despite however the website looked, you know, we were able to, to, to make it work. But no, he, um, you know, without him, the company wouldn't exist. And, and, you know, he worked incredibly hard on it. I think he was just, so the story is he actually was not um, based in London. So he was actually based in Chicago, which is kind of crazy in retrospect, right? Um, and, you know, he, we would just have calls every day and um, he hired a tech team in Chicago. Who had never um, used the product. Right? Who had never used the product. And Greg, Greg's just, um, he, he's, he was a pretty cheap guy. So he was like, <laughs> uh, he was like, no, we can't send the engineers over to London. And I was like, well, you know, maybe they should see what they're working on. You know, so we had a lot of funny arguments about that. But yeah, he made the decision to spend more time with his family and he, he didn't really want to move here. So, you know, um, uh, but I have nothing but, you know, really, um, great things to say about him. So, so there, there have been some, I mean, that was one, a difficult moment. Yes. I mean, a little bit difficult moment. Uh, there has been some, some, some others. I mean, the, some of the fundraising, you know, it's difficult. I mean, has there been any time where you thought that you were not the right guy for the job and you know, at some point like, oh, it got too big and you thought maybe get a, you know, Someone who has done it before. Are you suggesting? No, I just, you know, I just, I was wondering. You know, that idea, um, maybe. Yeah, look, I, I'd say that um, I, I've. This is my first time building a company. Um, you know, I've never worked in a big sort of company before where people thought deeply about org design and org structure. Um, so there's just a lot of things that you know I learn every day. There's a lot of things I learn from my colleagues. Um, I think that, um, you know, sort of, I, I can't say that I ever thought I wasn't the right guy for the job, to be honest. And maybe that's very cocky, but I, I definitely, um, definitely think I have a ton to learn every single day. That's for sure. And it is a very stressful job. There's no question about it. So, so how did you go about, I mean, I think you've done a pretty phenomenal job 
Thank you. Low, yeah. It's like just, you know, build, rebuilding your confidence now. Thank you. <laughs> but I think you've done a you know, fantastic job scaling with the business. Uh, you know, you, when, when we invested, there, was, there were eight employees. There were, what, 2,500 now? Or three, three? Yeah, it's like 2,500. Yeah, yeah. so, so it's changed, obviously, quite, quite a bit. Uh, but you're still around and you're still, you know, hiring better and better people. So, so how did you, how did you learn all of that? I mean, did you get mentors in? Did you get, did you get coached? I mean, how, what is your... Um, no, no mentors, no coaches. But I think that, you know, just hiring really great people that can teach me along the way was really critical. And, you know, just, um, I don't even know how to answer the question. It, it just, I don't think I had a choice, Right. So I just had to figure it out. Yeah. It wasn't like I sat around being, what else do I do? I'm like, I've got this problem. I'm going to figure it out. That's really about it. And that's may not be the greatest advice for people, but that is how I, you know, that's how I think about it. And how do you get these great people in? I think the other thing you've done really well is, is kind of constantly upgrading, you know, team, bringing people with more experience. But it's hard to do because first you need to attract them and second, convince them to join you and take a flyer on you. And two, you kind of get to manage the existing team, which is doing yeah, a good job. I'd say I, that's the hardest part, the yeah. latter, right? Because you have people that have helped scale your organization, build it up to where it is today. And you know some of them aren't going to scale with the business yet. What does that mean concretely, not, not going to scale? I mean, like, well, can, just, you know, some people, you okay, so like if it's a 20-person organization, everyone's on the same page because everyone's in the same room, right? Then you grow to 200 people and you start forming teams. Um, some people have excellent communication skills and are able to think ahead. Other people are better individual problem solvers, right? And so kind of if you, in, in the beginning, you almost always hire individual problem solvers, right? You, you want scrappy people that get stuff done. Um, and that ultimately just becomes a different profile of what you're looking for when you have an, a thousand person organization, right? And so if you're one of these people, you're sitting there going, well, hey, I've done a great job. Will thinks I've done a great job, yet I'm being told that, you know, we're looking for, for a different profile. That's really, really hard to say to someone, but it's also the right move. When your company grows at hundred percent, you know, year on year, as we still are doing, you know, seven years later, the amount of people that have been through that type of change is like zero. Right. Yeah. And you just have to, you just have to do it, but it's really, really, really hard. How you attract those people, I think is solving a really, really hard problem. I think people do are. Still, do you still interview them in, at KFC or is that? No, no, no. I think you're talking. <laughs> it was really funny. I was talking to Martin earlier. So I, um, th- there was this woman who worked for us for I think three to four years, Fenella, and she 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 left about a year ago. But she was great, and she was one of the first people I ever inter- ever interviewed. And she was going to be employee number one, but she turned us down to be an intern on one fine stay. So, um, and I always joke around about it with her and she's like, she's like, Will, you didn't have an office. You interviewed me at KFC, <laughs> you know? And, um, and it was just, yeah, I mean, it was, I, I don't know. So I, do I love, I love KFC yeah, yeah. and you know, I was there and she met me there and she did, I guess that didn't impress her too much. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. another thing you, you've been, good and pretty ruthless about it is also letting people go that didn't work out and especially senior people you know there has been cases where you know you've spent a lot of time hiring these people and then you realize it didn't work out i mean how how do you you know when do you know it's not working out how could you set yourself kind of a timeline you say if that's not you know if it's not improving by by 
after three months, then yeah, it's going to work. It's, or how it's, you, how you, it's really hard because you 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 spend a lot of time recruiting them. You have a really good, hopefully, a pretty good sense of how things are going to work out. And when it doesn't, you know, it's it's you're questioning. Hey, like I spent all this time. Like, should I just give it more time? Should I give it more time? Like. And I think it's one of those things where it just comes down to intuition um, and instinct and you kind of know. And I think the more you you kind of have hired people and have seen them develop, you kind of have a pretty good sense if someone will work out or not. Um, but I certainly think that I can get, you know, a lot better interviewing as well, right? It just, that's a skill that you learn over time. What are the questions to really ask people and push them on, right? But then again, it's like, it's an interview too. So it's like, yeah. What are you really going to get out of it? Right. But definitely reference people unofficially that that's like, does a lot. Do you give them a case study? Do you get them to work on, on site or what's I do? Yeah. I mean, it depends on the role, but yes, there's usually a case study involved and then a presentation to the exact team or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. So what's your, you know, how did, how did you manage to keep sane and relatively healthy, you know, more on the personal level, You know, that's through that whole crazy journey. Yeah, I don't think I'm sane, to be honest. I actually (laughs) have thought about this. I I think I'm a pretty normal person, but then I don't know. I don't know. Like, maybe I'm not sane. I don't know. So you set up a gym at at Deliver, right? Yeah, we have. um, So, like, we have a really cool office. We're really lucky to work um, in it. It's in the city of London. Uh, We have a cool roof deck, and um, it's. Look, I don't actually, like, personally, I'm not involved in office design. I just don't really care. Like, it's just not my thing. But I made sure there was a gym, um, which is about maybe a fifth of the size of this room, but it has every piece of equipment known to man in it. And so we've managed to, like, make it awesome. And so that that's really helpful. I think, you know, going to the gym, going on a walk. My favorite hobby is actually walking. Um, so I try to, you know, do a step count. Um, and I walk to work a lot of the times, even though it's six miles, um, just to really sort of clear my head, um, and get ready for the day. So that part I absolutely need to do. You still do deliveries? Or? Yeah, I, I do. I, I do them every once, every two weeks. Now I have a bicycle and I get on it and, and I go do it. I just log in. Um, I do it sometimes at work, sometimes in Notting Hill where I live. Um, and I, I love it. I think it's a lot of fun. So what, what would you have done differently across that, that whole journey? I mean, what you didn't the, tell me you're going to ask okay. me deep questions. Come on, no. <laughs> well, you say you're not very introspective. So I thought that was a good, a good. Occasion. I am not, not. Um, no, no, no. I'm not retrospective. I'm no. pretty introspective. Okay. I think. Awesome. Um, but um, oh, man, uh, I mean, so many different things, right? Um, I don't, I don't know where to begin. I think. I think probably to your point about a mentor or talking to people, I probably should have done that much more proactively. I think the problem is you're just working on this thing and it consumes you completely. And it's very, like, I didn't, I didn't, I never went to events or, you know, um, meetups or I just, I never did it. I was just like, I've got this thing to do. And maybe kind of getting different perspective from people would be helpful. Um, I think on the, Cause you were just working seven days a week. Yeah. Well, 20, I was 20, like, 20. remember the first year I, I did deliveries every single day for a year. Right. So I was a full-time delivery person, um, for an entire year. That's what I did at night. And so, so I think like I was just kind of crazy, you know, <laughs> I was just like working nonstop, you know? 
Um, and I think that getting different perspective from people would probably would have been pretty good. Um, I think the other thing that I think is like hyper important is on the people side, like learning the interview skills sooner would have been, would have made, I think a big difference and also acting faster on, you know, areas and people that don't work out, I think could have been helpful. And, and international expansion. I mean, you, you went pretty wide, pretty fast. Yeah. That obviously contributed to the burn a fair bit, but also added a lot of complexity to your, to the business, to your life as well. I mean, you not only have to you know, travel to Manchester to, to kind of take care of the business. Sometimes you have to go to Singapore and Australia and Hong Kong. Would you, would you, you know, would you think in retrospect, was that good to go as, as far as aggressively as early? Do you, would you regret? Yeah, no, not markets? at all. I think it's absolutely the right thing to do. I do think, however, um, it's really, really hard to have the same culture across all these different offices when you go to 11 countries in six months. It's just almost impossible, right? And then years later, you struggle with, okay, these these markets were almost run. They weren't run autonomously because obviously we share the same technology stack around the world. But how do you, um, as a business scales, as it grows, how do you think about the balance between centralization and localization, right? How do you create, I mean, I think any engineer, any product person is always thinking about how do I create a product that is as scalable as possible and widely used across the world. But the reality is, you know, what we do in Kuwait is going to be very different than what we do in Singapore and making sure that, you know, in what way? Well, for example, in Kuwait, um, 50% of our transactions are cash, right? That's not the easiest thing to deal with, but yet it's just incredibly important to Kuwaitis, right? Um, you know, in France, we had to build a, a platform for TK Resto, right? The, the, the meal vouchers for office workers, right? Um, you know, so there's all these little things and that's really hard to prioritize because you're always like, well, the UK is the biggest market. So I'm just going to kind of yeah. do what they're doing and you have to take a step back sometimes. So how did you, how did you manage? I mean, as you said, it's quite autonomous. So you started having everyone locally redoing everything and then you recentralized. Well, we're, we're, we're trying to, you know, figure that out, right? It's, it's not easy, but I'd say the initial cohort of people that joined Deliveroo, they were real problem solvers. Like we gave them technology and they went out and sort of figured out a market. Um, but over time, as we start building, you know, like our logistics algorithms team is amazing, right? And so we've built a ton of um, a, a, t- a ton of machine learning algorithms that really just obviously get better by themselves each day. But it's hard for a, let's say someone, you know, four years ago who joined, they were used to sort of trying to figure out all that stuff themselves, right? That's like one example. Yeah. Or pricing, Right. Pricing is also um, um, not just set by, you know, the local team, but there's an algorithm that that takes into account a lot of different factors. Right. So that is another example. Right. So it's trying to figure out that balance is hyper important and very difficult. And how do you go about changing some of your assumptions? I mean, I remember there was a moment in, in the life of the company where you had started with the business that worked really well in London. And you had kind of set some fixed parameters that were just made total sense in London. So kind of, you know, two mile delivery, 30 minutes time. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. And then, and then you, you apply the exact same formula everywhere. And then it turns out you had to be more flexible on some of these in other markets. And Yeah, and yeah no, I, I think that's right. I think we, and we continue to have this issue sometimes of 
you know, our business started as a city center business. So people, you know, in the eighth arrondissement in Paris, people in Hong Kong, people in zone one, two, three in London. And so when you have that density of restaurants, you can have a pretty short radius or you can set a delivery fee at a pretty low rate. But as you go out to the suburbs of Manchester or Lyon, places like that, you just have to have a different um, way of operating. And that's something that, you know, I think took us a bit of time to, to figure out. I'll give you a really good example. I, I actually find this super funny. Um, so Madrid, we uh, were and are still like the fastest service in Madrid by like pretty, pretty far margin. But what we realized over time is um, the Spanish Spaniards didn't really care when the food turned up, um, which is kind of, kind of funny. Um, they're just like, well, they don't really care. So what you would trade off there is you would say, well, actually what I'm going to do is have a longer radii and show people more restaurants as opposed to optimizing for delivery speed. Um, because, maybe that person wants, you know, the burger from three miles away and they're willing to wait 45 minutes. And so there's a lot of different local factors that are, are important. And it, you know, when you have a singular system, it's hard to optimize for that. Do you, do you use car, do, do, do drivers or riders use cars in, in certain, certain markets as well? Yeah. I mean, a lot of them now, I mean, in the um, North of the UK, um, I would say cars are very prevalent. Um, so, but, but yeah, we started as a two wheel type, um, product. Um, and still today we are the vast majority, but it was bicycles and, and scooters. And, you know, now we're obviously we, we have an increasing number of cars, Australia as well. Right. So you, you've been, um, in this industry for six years now, pretty much. Seven, six, well, six I started the company August of 12. So almost yeah, seven years. years. Yeah. Yeah. What, what have you learned from the restaurant industry that kind of supports surprised you? I, I think what's interesting about the restaurant industry is um, just how quickly delivery grew. Um, I think when I started the business, I viewed it as a pretty interesting side income for, for restaurants, right? And really, you know, um, they've already paid for the rent, they've already paid for the staff, and it's just a matter of kind of cooking a few more meals. What I suppose I didn't anticipate, and probably a lot of people didn't, is how pervasive this sort of lifestyle became for people very, very quickly in the sense that a restaurant then almost had to rethink, I mean, the really successful restaurants in Deliveroo had to really rethink the way they thought about um, delivery, the setup of the restaurant, the technology they use, packaging, um, all of these things, labor, right? Um, or all the way to physical infrastructure, like our delivery-only kitchens. And that, to me, was um, pretty interesting how quickly that changed over time. I think the number one example of that is China, right? When you look at Meituan and you see how them and Ulama have just changed this, I mean, in five years, um, the way people consume food in, in totality. So it's pretty crazy. So you, so, so you think people will stop cooking? Is that you see that happening? I mean, I definitely see that as a long-term trend. You know, if you take, if you go back 50 years ago, well, let's say a hundred years ago, people cooked out of complete necessity, right? I mean, the rich people went to restaurants and I think that maybe 50 years that changed a bit. Now, a lot of people still cook due to cost reasons for sure, but a lot of people cook because they want to, right? And it's, it's actually a fun activity and it's not just purely economic. And I think over time, um, there's definitely a situation where, for a majority of people in a population, it becomes a, a, more of a hobby as it uh, versus an economic necessity. Do, do you cook? 
I actually do. Um, I am specialized in one dish currently. It's I've been experimenting with uh, cauliflower rice, and I, I cooked a egg fried rice with uh, cauliflower rice uh, yesterday. It was actually pretty good. Yeah, very healthy. I mean, I'm, I'm not always the healthiest guy, but I'm trying. I'm trying. So, you, the um, the restaurant industry in the UK, especially, has been struggling, you know, a fair bit, yeah. despite Deliveroo. Some people, you know, may say because of Deliveroo. What, what do you what do you make of that? I mean, have you have you been saving the high street, or have you been? Um, I I definitely think we have been. I I think that, look, the UK restaurant industry right now is suffering from a number of factors. Number one is um, Brexit. Uh, So as sterling has collapsed, Britain is a net importer of food. And so the cost of ingredients has just increased, right? That's one. Number two, the cost of labor. Um, There's not not as many people coming here. And if you look across London, who works in Pret? Right, it's it's Europeans predominantly, right? Um, so the labor situation has changed pretty dramatically. Third, business rates have gone up. That's a more of a one-time thing, but it's gone up twenty percent last year. And then you have this sort of influx, a tremendous amount of influx of private equity capital over the last five years as well. Um, and if you look at all the Italian concepts that have popped up in the last sort of five to ten years, you could argue there's a bit of an over an investment cycle as well. So. I think we're doing, you know, great things for the restaurant industry. Uh, but there are certainly some exogenous factors at play as well. And do you see, do you see a lot of uh, delivery only concepts coming out? Any, 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 any new, do you think the next Burger King or the next KFC will be, will be delivery only restaurant that only exists? I, I on think, the- I think eventually, yeah. yeah. I, I think there will exist. Con- I mean, if you think about Domino's, Domino's is a, predominantly delivery concept and you know they've had tremendous success and we actually you know I think about Domino's and Amazon are like two companies that I really admire um, from their operational side of things I, I so there there are a few concepts you know one of our former employees I think he was employee number 10 Anton um, started a, a business called taster um, which you guys should try out it there's a few brands they have they they, they have vert sorry they're not virtual brands they, they have brands that they started that they cook in kitchens with no physical dining space, right? So one is called uh, Outcry Chicken, um, and another one's called Mission Saigon. You, you guys can order them around here. I think he's done a fantastic job scaling that business in France, UK, and Spain. Um, and, you know, we're seeing a lot of these concepts arise. Yeah. And you think they'll replace altogether the, 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 the physical chains? No, I don't. I don't think so. I, I think that People have different reasons to consume food, right? One of them is social, and I think there's no replacement for going to a restaurant and having a meal with a friend. Uh, you know, I, I do think, however, it's important to also just understand that consumers have preferences, yeah. and you just have to figure out what those are. And are, are you are you guys cooking your own? You know, I mean, except the, the cauliflower rice thing, but. Are you guys launching your own concepts? Are you like are you doing we, some? We have a food? limited, a uh, small number of concepts. We we acquired a company called Maple two years ago um, from New York, and these guys were full stack in the sense they delivered their food, they cooked it, they built their own kitchens, and so they've been really innovative on that front. And what's what's remarkable there was 
by the way, to be frank, at the time of the acquisition, I was quite skeptical of that. You know, it's coming yeah. in New York, doing a business that has nothing, nothing to do with what you guys are doing. I was like, why the hell is he pay, paying that that thing, you know? But you got your way and you, and you ended up buying buying the company and two co-founders are now very senior executives yeah. that deliver. They are part of the your inner circle, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so, you know, c- congrats. But how did you manage to, you know, bring them over from New York, get them, manage to keep them motivated? You know, they had their company, they got acquired. How did you keep them along and well, be they, so they successful, a, right? They have a lot of options. So <laughs> that's, that's, I think that's there's, a good, there's always a good that. reason, yeah. Um, but I, I think that, look, they, they're part of something bigger now. Um, they see the growth in the company. They, they see the con- consumer engagement. And I think they're just really, really excited that their vision is, is part of a larger one. Yeah. Um, and they've been great. Right. Well, I think that's uh, that's it for 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 me. Um, so why don't we just uh, turn it to the audience and get a few a few questions? Hello, thank you. That was an amazing panel. Um, I have a question. So when you think about expansion and selling food from your kitchen is legal in California. When is the restaurant going to become the individual? Like, do you think about influencers or individuals having? restaurants on Deliveroo? Yeah, I mean, we've definitely experimented with um, kind of chefs that perhaps don't have the capital to start their own um, uh, bricks and mortar restaurants. So they set up something in additions. We've done this with a number of people. And based on the success they have there, they're able to get a bank loan to actually open up a restaurant. So it could be influencers. It could be someone just out of culinary school. It could be a street food vendor. I mean, I think the opportunities are, are, are really, really endless when it comes to that. The, the key is, though, what I've realized is people that are good at creating food in a small scale, they may not have the operational expertise to kind of blow it out on a bigger scale. So that's just something that's pretty important as you start you know, down that path. We actually invest in a company of uh, home home cooking. Did you? Did I get you to invest in yeah. that? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that that went best. So, so yeah, yeah, that was about. Well, we lost more money than you did. So that's yeah. But that was okay. that was like three months, man. Yeah, no. Okay. No, no, but no, it was no, a great. No. I it was like six months. Okay, yeah, fine. Yeah. But it was actually it was actually a great idea. It was yeah, poor execution. Let's put it away. Um. Hey. Uh. Thanks so much. Um, my question is around efficiencies and you talked about, um, two wheel delivery and then how are you thinking about moving beyond wheel delivery at all? So for example, Amazon are launching their drone technology. And I suppose, how are you thinking about other ways of getting to your customers and then what effect will that have on your driver partners and your delivery partners? That's a great question. I I think that, um, aerial drones, make sense in areas of low population density that we couldn't service today. So really we target areas above, call it a thousand people per square kilometer. And with aerial drones, you could definitely, you know, reach a lot of places we couldn't today. I don't think there's going to be a substitute for urban delivery outside of, you know, manpower for a very, very long time. So that's not really a big area of focus for us right now. Have you, have you seen that company in the, in the U S called Kiwi? That does uh, like remote control robots in on campuses. You haven't seen that. So that, it's a remote control. So you need to like what? Well, it's it not exactly remote control. They have like an operator that kind of sets routes of delivery for these little robots. 
So why don't no, I'll, check, control it. I'll check it out. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I mean, there's definitely about, people yeah. getting into sort of sidewalk rovers. That's been, yeah. a, I think, Starship, Marble. There's a number of people that are doing some pretty exciting stuff on that. Um, I think we'll wait and see what happens with that. Um, right now, it's it's not an area of focus for us. Well, thank you. Very, very interesting. You got me hungry now. Oh, good. <laughs> um, quick question about this whole gigger economy and how you sort of scaled up your your riders whilst keeping them not as employees and the stress and strain and financial charge they sort of accrue for you. How did you do that? And now would you rather consider them as employees or are you safer keeping them as self-employed Well, I think, agents? you know, the way I sort of think about it is what do our riders actually care about? Mm-hmm. Remember the vast majority of them. So, so our riders around the world work on average about 11 to 12 hours a week, right? So, over 50% of them are students in the UK. And so what they have to do is they have the ability to log in and out whenever they want. So they can decide, okay, I'm going to go study or I'm going to go to the pub or I'm going to log in and work for a few hours. And that's the majority of the people that work with us. So flexibility is critical. They can also work for Uber Eats. They can also work for Just Eat. They can also work for Amazon. So there's sort of a market setting sort of price dynamic going on. So there's the flexibility side. Number two really is pay, right? And so what we try to do is target a wage well in excess of the minimum wage. And so I believe in the UK, our riders make about 11 pounds an hour. And when you think about the sort of costs that you actually need to become a rider, it's a bicycle and a phone. These are things that people have anyway. So the barriers to entry are actually very low. I think it's very different than, say, if you were, say, an Uber driver, for instance, where you have to have a car and you need to go through TFL and you need insurance, you need petrol. So it's a bit of a different thing. But I think the third point, which is a point that I personally um, am very involved in, is how do we offer people more security, the people that want it, right? And not everyone does because the young people, they tend not to want it. And so the way we've been talking to governments about this is, is there a system in which you can retain the flexibility but also offer security? So I'll give you an example. The way I sort of think about it is if you work with Deliveroo, say, I don't know, three hours a month, I don't think that's the same sort of social contract as if you worked with us for 40 hours a week, right? And so our idea is how do you accrue benefits? Um, Maybe it's on a delivery basis. I don't know exactly what it looks like. We've been working on a lot of different things so that the people that work with you over the long term have rights that are more akin to an employee, but the people that are with you for a very short amount of time don't. So that's really what we've been trying to work through with various governments. So I've got, I've got one, one final question for you, Will. Um, so do you, where do you see yourself in 10 years? Do you, are you still, will, you, will you still be running Deliveroo? <laughs> um. I don't know, man. Um, 10 years is a long time, you know. Um, I I can tell you that the last seven years of my life have been the most intense experience. And they have been in, in some parts extremely fun, some parts extremely stressful. I'm so proud of, you know, everything the team's done um, over those last seven years. But 10 years from now, I, I, don't, I mean, I'll, I, I, you know, thought I'd be at a beach with you somewhere, man. <laughs> We'll, uh, we'll leave it at that then. Let's do that. Thanks. 
Breakthrough is Creative Workspace Second Home's year-round educational program designed to help members make their dent in the universe. If you enjoyed this talk, check out what else is coming up at secondhome.io or follow us at at secondhome underscore io. Second Home, a workspace as creative as you are.